If you'll take your Bible and find your place this morning at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. For those of you that are just joining us, we are studying the Beatitudes, and we have come now to the fourth of these eight Beatitudes. I've challenged you to memorize these Beatitudes, and I hope that you're working on that. I know I'm working on that, and I hope you're working on that with me. We're going to read beginning in chapter 5, verse 3, and I invite you to follow along. We've read this every week. We'll read it every week of this series. Follow along with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before us. Several years ago, uh, my doctor told me, he said, David, I want you to go get some additional tests to the ones that we normally run, and I want you to get some that are done on your heart. Uh, I didn't have any particular problem. I think he was just trying to create a baseline for a future reference so that he would know how I was progressing or I wasn't progressing. And so I went, I got an EKG, and then I had to do a stress test, you know, where they walk you to they get your heart uh, rhythm up, your heart rate up to a certain level, and, and then they observe your heart and the various things that they do. But then the third thing was an echocardiogram, which was something that I had never done before. I wasn't really exactly sure what all that was. But they used sound waves, as I understand it. And as I laid there on the table and they were doing this echocardiogram, the sound waves would put a picture back onto a screen, and that picture was of your heart while it was beating. And apparently, what you can do, is, I was listening to them as they're talking and doing this, you know, they can tell about the different chambers of your heart. They can investigate how the valves of your heart are working, how they're opening and closing, and is there any leaking of the valves? And they, they're watching your heart beat. And if you've ever had that done, maybe you felt a little bit like I did while that was happening. It was a little bit unsettling to see my heart on the screen. It was a little bit unusual to be watching my heart as it was beating and to see those valves opening and closing and thinking to myself, you know, what if I miss some beats? Or, you know, what if it stops while they're doing this? I guess I would be in the right place, wouldn't I? Or what if a valve got stuck? You know, they do in my car. <laughs> what if a valve got stuck? Or what if they found something wrong? And, you know, I could see it on their faces. But, you know, those are all things that, that have to be done in order to be able to determine your health and to make sure you're as healthy a as you can be. And it's a procedure uh, that is necessary. And probably many of you have had all of those same things that I went through several years ago. Well, the Bible teaches that the heart is the control center of our lives. But when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not talking about our physical heart that's beating in our chests. It's talking about one where our thoughts and our will 
as well as our emotions, where all of this flows from us, how it comes from us. It's the seat of our personality. This heart we're talking about is the seat of our personality. It's the executive center of our lives. It's where the decisions are made, where the choices are made. In a similar way that our blood flows from and through our physical hearts, so what we think and what we feel and ultimately what we do flows from and through our metaphysical hearts. That part of us, probably located here in our brains, that part of us uh, where we're making all of these decisions and all of our emotions come from and all the things flow from us, we decide what words we're going to speak and, and so forth. But Suppose for a moment, if we could put that heart of yours, your metaphysical heart, up onto a screen, we had some kind of a spiritual echocardiogram, and we could put your metaphysical heart up onto the screen, what thoughts would it reveal about the people that are sitting near you? What would it show us about your day at work tomorrow or about the anxieties that you have in life? What if we could look in your metaphysical heart and we could see your emotions and your feelings about that difficult person at work or your feelings about what you did last night before you came to church today on Sunday? Or suppose we could watch your heart as you decide where you're going to go on the internet this afternoon or how you're going to conduct your business this week. How comfortable would you be with your true heart being seen by everyone on that screen, would you be okay with what you and the rest of us could see? You begin to understand that that's what we're doing during the course of this message, these messages from, from the Beatitudes. That we're, we're putting our hearts up onto the screen, our metaphysical heart up onto the screen, and we're comparing it uh, to the heart of Jesus and what he wishes for us to, to be, how he wants us to live in love like himself. And we're comparing these to one another, and we're diagnosing where there are problems in our lives, where there are things that God doesn't want in our lives. We're diagnosing what we need to change, and we're looking to see how our lives can become more like Jesus' life and more like the attitude of Jesus. And so today, we arrive at this fourth of the Beatitudes. It's found here in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 6, and it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Will you say that out loud with me? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Something interesting I want you to note is that the first three Beatitudes about being poor in spirit, about mourning, and about being meek, all of those previous three set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. Being poor in spirit means that we aren't to be self-sufficient. We're to recognize that we need God every day of our lives. To mourn is to mourn over our sins and over the effects of our sins so that we're not self-righteous. And to be meek means to have power that's under control. And you're not self-seeking and you're not self-serving in your life. In other words, these first three that we've studied 
are talking about us dying to ourselves and grieving over our own sinfulness and its effects and about surrendering our power to, to the control of the Almighty God. But those first three, when we empty ourselves of ourselves, put us in a position for us to begin to cultivate this growing desire, this hungering and thirsting for God and for the righteousness of God. I want you to think about what he says here. He says to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Two things about hunger and thirst. First of all, it's natural. Uh, you didn't get up this morning and have to say to yourself, I'm going to hunger today. It just simply happens, doesn't it? And in a little while, your stomach will growl again because it'll be lunchtime. And a little later, if you're like some of us, you'll have a mid-afternoon grumbling. And then there'll be an evening time grumbling because your body just naturally desires to be fed. It desires to have its thirst met. You don't think about it. You don't plan for it. You don't work it up. It's just what happens in the body of a person who is healthy somebody who is strong in, in body. Not only is it natural, but it's continual. Uh, it comes back again and again. If, for you, it may be like Elijah that was fed by the ravens in the morning and the evening, and maybe it's two meals for you. But guess what? Tomorrow, you're going to need to be fed again, and you're going to need to drink something again, right? It, it's something that's continual. It goes on over and over every moment of our lives. It goes on and on. And when a believer doesn't hunger and thirst for God and for God's righteousness, it means the same thing as when you don't hunger and thirst naturally or continually. It means there's something wrong in our spiritual lives. It was the Apostle Peter who said that we should desire what? The sincere milk of the word. The sincere milk of the word, the sustenance that comes to us from the righteousness of God that we find in the word of the living God. There is to be that kind of natural, continual hungering and thirsting. And if it's not there, we're sick. There's something wrong with us. When I get sick, I don't like to eat. Don't feel like eating. Probably when you're sick and you're running a fever, you don't feel like eating. What did I tell you to do? Drink plenty of fluids. Drink plenty of fluids. But in those moments when you're sick, you don't feel like doing those things. You literally have to make yourself do those things. And when a believer doesn't desire hunger and thirst after God and after the righteousness of God, it means they're sick. It means that there's something wrong in their lives. They're gorging themselves on something that cannot satisfy them. Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, tells a story, and I want to read it to you. During the liberation, he says, of, the Palestine, of Palestine in World War I, a combined force of British, Australian, and New Zealand soldiers was closely pursuing the Turks as they retreated from the desert. As the Allied troops moved northward toward Beersheba, they began to outdistance their water-carrying camel train. When the water ran out, their mouths, he says, got dry, their heads ached, and they became dizzy and faint. Eyes became bloodshot, lips swelled and turned purple, and mirages became common. They knew that if they did not make the wells of Sharia by nightfall, thousands of them would die as hundreds already had. Literally fighting 
for their lives, they managed, he, he writes, to drive the Turks from Sharia. He goes on. As water was distributed from the great stone cisterns, the more able-bodied were required to stand at attention and wait for the wounded and those who would take guard duty to drink first. It was four hours before the last man had his drink. During that time, the men stood no more than 20 feet from thousands of gallons of water, which had been their consuming passion for many agonizing days. It is said that one of the officers who was present reported, now listen carefully. It is said that one of the officers who was, pre who was present reported, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to, Shariah, to the Sharia wells. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, and for his will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit we would be. It's natural. It's continual. It's the result of being healthy spiritually that we long for and we desire to drink of and to take and consume of the righteousness of God and of God himself. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good and we take it into ourselves again and again. What consumes your heart and mind on a daily basis? Is it your desire to accomplish your goals? Is it your desire to please your family or somebody in your life? Is it your desire to make yourself comfortable? I want to be as convenient in this world as I can possibly be. Is it your desire for wealth or fame? Is it your desire for amusement and frivolity? What is it that consumes your heart and mind every single day? What should be the natural, continual response of your spiritual life? What is it that consumes you? Are you driven by an all-consuming desire to seek God and to seek his righteousness? Do you understand? We can't even get many Christians to come back to church. They don't seem to have any natural, continual hungering and thirsting after God. And it means that they're either sick or they're dead spiritually. They never had the life of God in them to begin with. I want you to turn a couple of pages over to Matthew chapter 6. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. But in chapter 6, Jesus, in this great sermon that he delivers, probably the most famous of his sermons that he delivered, Jesus talks about our worries. And he says, don't worry about what you're going to put on and don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from. You don't need to worry about those things. Your heavenly Father sees you, and he knows what your needs are, and he has promised to meet your needs according to his riches in glory. But you come down in verse 33. At the end of that discussion, listen to what he says. Instead of seeking after the things you're worried about, things that, that consume your mind, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, do you hear it, and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. In other words, if you would let your desire that's continual just be for me and for my righteousness, the result would be that I'll take care of the other things in your life. I'll take care of you and provide what you need. 
But so often the Lord is the last thing and the last one that we think about. He's the last one that's the interest of our life. He's the last one that we're pursuing on a daily, consistent basis. Think about how this has worked out in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, In his public ministry, it didn't really begin until he was about 30 years of age. That number depends on when you date his birth, but about the age of 30 when Jesus began his public ministry. But do you know what he was doing during those uh, 29 years previous? Well, neither do I. We know very little about that period of his, of his life. What we do know about those early years of Jesus is that he worked with his family's trade, which was carpentry, and that he studied the Torah just like every other Jewish boy studied the Torah. But when it came the day for Jesus to step out and to begin his public ministry, where did it start? It started down at the Jordan River. And down there at the Jordan River, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. That's why every person who trusts in Jesus should be baptized. Every one of us should want to profess our faith in the Lord Jesus, publicly declare everyone to everyone that we're followers of Jesus. But Jesus was baptized by John. And do you remember what happens? The Holy Spirit is descending upon him. And then what happens? The voice of God speaks from heaven. And everybody that was an onlooker that day heard the announcement that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. My son in whom I am well pleased. But here's what's interesting. What does Jesus do after that announcement? What does Jesus do as his first act as a newly heralded, as the newly heralded Messiah? What is his first act? He didn't perform a miracle. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't raise anyone from the dead. Instead, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and did what? He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Why would he choose this among all the other possibilities that were available to him? Why? Well, at least in part, He was making a definitive statement about what was most important to him. He was, in essence, living out what he would later teach in this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He subdued his human appetites in order to seek his Father in heaven. In that wilderness, Jesus was saying, I choose to hunger and thirst after that which alone can truly satisfy. Have you discovered, as I have, that the things of this world will satisfy for a little bit of time, but it doesn't satisfy for a very long time? It's like eating Reese's peanut butter cups, my favorite chocolate candy, Reese's peanut butter cups, if you want to pick some up this afternoon. It's like eating Reese's peanut butter cups. They are really, really good for a little while, and then the after effects are not so good, right? The things of this world can never truly satisfy. Only God and his righteousness can bring true satisfaction. Peggy Noonan was the former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and George Bush, and later she became a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. But 
She was speaking one time at the Lincoln Day dinner, and she wrote down her thoughts about being satisfied, about finding true satisfaction. And at one point in this speech, she says this, Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this one to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are the first generation of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth, and our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason? If you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, if you believe this is your only chance at happiness, if that is what you believe, then you are not disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches. Instead, you are despairing. You are despairing. Can I just say from a pastor's perspective, these first responders that are amongst us today could probably tell better than me, but can I just tell you from a pastor's perspective, I don't know if I've seen despair to a greater degree than I'm seeing it presently in the faces of people that are around me. Somehow thinking that they're going to find satisfaction in this world at the end of a needle or snorting something up their nose or at the bottom of that bottle. And they think they're going to find satisfaction in sex or in some other thing that is illicit. Thinking that it's going to satisfy, but they have to get up and do it again and again and again and again because it can never satisfy. The only one who can satisfy, truly satisfy, is Jesus Christ is God himself, is the righteousness of God, pursuing after the righteousness of God. If you're not pursuing those things, you're coming up in despair over and over and over again. You notice what he says here in verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Isn't that good news? To be filled is the idea of having meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. Those who hunger not after those things, those who hunger after righteousness are filled with meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction. And that makes for the blessed life. But we have to hunger and thirst for that righteousness to hunger and thirst for God himself, to desire God more than we desire anything else. And did you notice that it says that it's God who fills us? We don't fill ourselves. That's what he says here. For they shall be filled. Who does the filling? God does the filling. God is the one who comes to us when we hunger and thirst for him, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. God is the one who comes to us, and God is the one who fills us with meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction so that we have this divinely joyous, blessed life that he wants us to experience. People are looking in the wrong places to find what is missing in their hearts and missing in their families in missing even in our world. Do you realize that the more we dismiss God from public, from the public arena, the more despair rises around us, the sadder people become? Jesus' analogy here demonstrates that righteousness is required for spiritual life, just as food and water are required for physical life. 
In other words, righteousness is not an optional spiritual supplement. It's an absolute spiritual necessity. I got up this morning, and after I ate breakfast, I took a vitamin, a supplement. Maybe you take supplements, but the righteousness of God is not an optional spiritual supplement. It's an absolute spiritual necessity. We can no more have a spiritually blessed life apart from righteousness than we can have a healthy physical life apart from food and water. That's what Jesus is trying to say. You can't live without food and water. I heard somewhere that you can live about 40 days without food, 40 days or so. You can live about seven or eight days without water. Uh, You can live about eight minutes without air. But you cannot live, have spiritual meaning in your life and fulfillment if you're not pursuing after the righteousness of God, his righteousness, his kingdom, God himself. God himself is an absolute spiritual necessity, and we have to be seeking after him. We have to do more than just seek after him. We have to hunger and thirst And those two words are strong words. They don't mean like you're hungry and thirsty at this moment. They're hunger and thirst like you would be if you hadn't eaten for days on end, if you hadn't had anything to drink for days on end. This strong desire for hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. And that's absent from our lives. We turn up in despair over and over and over again. Now, I... I want to take just a few more minutes and I want to talk about three aspects to, to righteousness. Really, righteousness, you can talk about righteousness, it's, it's a pretty broad subject. I want to talk about three aspects of righteousness that we're going to consider for just a few minutes. And one of these three is specifically what Jesus means here in this text, but the other two are important for us to understand. The first one we'll call legal righteousness. Legal righteousness. This has has to do with what happens to us when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In those moments when we say, Jesus, I trust in you for the gift of eternal life. I trust in you to be my personal Savior. Jesus, I'm not relying on my church or anything else or whatever words you might have used, but you turned your heart to Jesus and you wanted Jesus to be your Savior. In those moments, at that exact moment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to your life. The righteousness of Jesus Christ was given to you as a gift, and now the Father sees you in the righteousness of Jesus. It's legal righteousness. Your uh, position is one of being a child of God in the righteousness of Jesus, though your practice may not always measure up to your position. Your position in God is one of righteousness because you're in Jesus Christ. We're made right with God legally. We're declared to be righteous through faith in Jesus. And that's our position before God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can I tell every person who's uh, in this room or every person who's watching this live stream, can I just tell you that if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've been been made uh, a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus was imputed to your life. 
It was given to you at that moment, and you were made right with God. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation because I want you to hear three phrases, very important phrases. Listen to it. We are, here's the first phrase, made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace, here it comes again, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. People are, here it is again, made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. We are declared to be right with God because we have the righteousness of Jesus that's been imputed to us. Do you get it? Maybe I could explain it this way. If I had this morning a piece of red glass and I looked through that piece of red glass, everything in this room would look what color? It would look red. If I had a piece of blue glass and I held that piece of blue glass up and I looked through that blue glass to see everything in this room, what color would it look, look like? It would look like it was blue. If I had a piece of yellow glass and I looked through that yellow glass and I looked at everything in this room, what color, what color would I see? I would see yellow. And you could go on through the color palette and do the same thing again and again. Here's the glorious truth of God's redemption. It is that when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, it is that God looks at us through the lens of Christ's righteousness. Isn't that great? It is that God looks at us through the lens of Christ's righteousness. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't mean that you are righteous as you should be righteous, but it means that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. By the way, he doesn't see skin color. He doesn't see your economic background. He doesn't see your nationality. He doesn't see whether you're male or female. He sees that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you know how you're going to get into heaven? You're not going to line up all of your righteous works and your righteous deeds and say, Lord, look here. Here's one, here's two, here's three, here's six, here's ten, here's twelve. You're not going to do that. You know how you're going to get into heaven? You're going to stand there in the righteousness of Jesus, and he's going to say you have entrance because of Jesus. Do you understand that Jesus became poor so that we might be made rich in him? Do you understand that Jesus has already taken our sin on himself and removed any barrier from you coming to Jesus Christ so that when you believe in Jesus Christ, he imputes to him, to you, his righteousness. And now when he sees you, he sees you through the lens of his son and he accepts you on that basis. You are accepted not on the basis of what you do. You're, on the, you're accepted on the basis of what Jesus has already done for you. Praise God. That's what I call legal righteousness. That's what it means in John chapter 4 when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well. And he said, you'll never thirst again. Jesus was talking about when the righteousness is imparted to her, you'll never thirst again. He wasn't talking about literal water. 
You'll be satisfied. You'll have this fullness. You'll have this completeness that you can never have any other way yet through Jesus. It's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 6 when he says, I'm the bread of, the li- I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. You'll have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that legal righteousness that comes from him. But there's a second kind of righteousness I want to talk about, and that's social righteousness. And by social righteousness, I mean that we seek to do what is right by helping those that are experiencing injustice or oppression. You can look through the Old Testament, and the prophets constantly speak to this whole matter of this kind of social righteousness. It includes things like feeding the hungry and caring for widows and orphans or visiting the sick or taking care of people who are in need. Uh, The writer James in the book of James says that pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble. That's not all that pure religion is, but that is part of what pure religion is, to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Paul told young Timothy that he was to take care of the widows who were widows indeed, right? There is a social righteousness where we're seeking to make a difference in the lives of people in the community that are around us that become our witness for Jesus Christ so that we have opportunity to tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. I want you to keep your place here and in Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to go back with me to Isaiah chapter 1 for just a moment. Isaiah was prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom. Uh, they were, there were times of revival, and there, there were times when they needed repentance because they had walked away from God. And on this occasion, you're going to see that they'd walked away from God. Isaiah chapter 1, listen to what he says, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Skip over to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He picks up a name uh, that's familiar. And he says, you're like Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or, the, or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to the new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates, for they are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, for your hands are full of blood. And then turn over to chapter 58, Isaiah 58. Do you understand what he's saying? As you're turning, listen to me. He's telling them, listen, you're going through all of these religious ceremonies and you're doing all of these religious things, but you're not caring at all about me or about my people. You're not interested in helping anyone else around you. Though you're religious and everybody sees your religiosity, you have no interest in the society around you. And he comes in chapter 58 
In verse 1, you'll notice he says, cry aloud. He's telling Isaiah, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the people of Jacob their sins. Now notice, skip on down to verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. And he keeps going on talking about this fast that you're doing, but it doesn't have the right purpose. And he comes down to verse 6. Notice, is this not the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you might break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, and when you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you religious people in southern, southern uh, Judah, you're, you're living out this religious life of ceremony and going through your rich, rituals and you're fasting and you're supposedly fasting for me. But if you were fasting and humbling yourself before me, you would be caring about the people that are around you. That's social righteousness. I'm thankful that our church is doing as much as we can and trying to do more to help those that are hurting around us. I'm thankful for the LifeBridge ministry. We've literally fed thousands of families over the last 25 years of that ministry, started by Clyde and Charlie Doby, and then directed by Mike Holman. And people have come and gotten food, and they've gotten clothes in their uh, most desperate moment of life. I'm thankful for Ebenezer. Ebenezer on 8th Avenue, where we're just beginning to ramp up after the COVID thing passed through where we're just beginning to ramp up, where we now have children's ministry going on, and we, we feed the first responders once a month, and we're doing a vacation Bible school there in a, just a few weeks, and other things that are in the works to start happening there. Why? Because we're reaching out to people in the community. I'm thankful that we have a church that digs wells. We've literally given thousands of dollars to, 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 to uh, dig clean water wells on the other side of the earth. In some of the darkest places of the earth, we've bought farm animals, chickens and cows, so that people could have the sustenance of life. We provided this past Christmas two mobile hospitals and the medical supplies to go with it. We've given blankets to the veterans and to newborn babies. We work in the pro-life causes. We work in the pro-life causes. We plant churches around the world, and the list can go on and on because we as a church have a responsibility. We as a believer have a responsibility for social righteousness. But then finally, what Jesus is specifically talking about here is what I call moral righteousness. The context suggests that righteousness in, is in the fourth beatitude primarily refers to moral righteousness. Why do you say that, Pastor? Well, because next he talks about being merciful. Then he talks about being pure in heart. Then he talks about being a peacemaker. Then he talks about persecution. In other words, when you empty yourself of yourself and you start hungering and thirsting for God and for the righteousness of God, 
The end result is that you become a person who's merciful and pure in heart, a peacemaker. And what happens when that occurs? You become different than the world around you and they persecute you. So that when Jesus said to hunger and thirst after righteousness, he was talking about this kind of moral righteousness where we're living out the truths of Jesus Christ publicly before others so that they can see Jesus in us. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, defines this righteousness that Jesus is talking about as a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. He goes on to write, the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness then hungers and thirsts for conformity to God's will. He's not drifting aimlessly in a sea of empty religiosity. Still less is he puttering about being about distracted by inconsequential trivia. Rather, his whole being echoes the prayer of a saint who cried, Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. And shouldn't that be our prayer? God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. In other words, Christians, he says here, are to hunger and thirst, have an intense longing to obey God and to obey God's will and to obey God's word. An intense longing. And people who are hungering and thirsting in that fashion, they'll faithfully attend worship services with their families to learn the word of God rather than just showing up every once in a while whenever it's convenient. People who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness get involved in life groups so they can keep learning the word of God and learning about the righteousness of God. They have a spiritual hunger. And people who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness read the scriptures for themselves in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what he says next? Here's this righteousness. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There it is. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, we're to hunger and thirst for all that he has commanded us all that he has written for us, all that he has given to us. We should be hungering and thirsting after those things. I want to close with a story. I read this in the Associated Press, and I was impressed because I like Waffle House. I don't know if you've ever been to Waffle House. You should have your tetanus shots and (laughs) others, but I'm just kidding, of course. I'm just kidding. I love to eat breakfast there. How many of you like Waffle House? Now, I'm going to tell you this. I, I have been called out in the middle of the night you know, to go to a hospital or because of a death. and there's, there's a different crowd at the Waffle House at 2 or 3 in the morning than there is at 10 or 11 during the day. I don't know if you know that or not. I don't have you know, the right kind of outfits to wear at that hour of the night. But in 2017, the Associated Press reported that a hungry patron, Alex Bowen, waited for 10 minutes to order during a recent visit to a Waffle House at 2 a.m. Then he took matters into his own hands. 
Upon finding the lone employee asleep, Bowen went behind the kitchen counter and meticulously cooked the food he needed to craft his sandwich. Now listen, a double Texas bacon cheesesteak melt. Let's dismiss. While doing so, he took a series of photos documenting his self-service episode, including him paying for the food and cleaning the grill afterward. Representatives from Waffle House applauded Bowen's cooking skills, but cautioned against similar behavior, saying patrons should avoid going behind the counter for safety reasons. What's back there? No word was given as to why the Waffle House was so understaffed or how the lone employee might be penalized for sleeping on the job. Now listen, what is clear, however, is that a man or woman who really wants a double Texas bacon cheesesteak melt can be motivated to take action over and above the normal call of duty. Hey, folks, I'm not talking about a Texas bacon cheesesteak melt. I'm talking about God himself. I'm talking about the righteousness of God. I'm talking about his son. We hunger and we thirst for him. And my prayer is that God will motivate us to take action in developing a passionate desire to seek after him and his righteousness above everything else in life.